This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Howdy, people. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today's episode is about transportation with Betty Ruvalo. Betty is a disabled urban planner who is passionate about transportation access for the disability community. She just graduated this year from UCLA's Lustig School of Public Affairs. Betty will share how she first became interested in transportation and the results from a survey she conducted of people with disabilities in San Francisco about new mobility technologies and services. You'll learn more about new mobility and Patty's vision for inclusive and accessible cities in the future. Are you ready? <coughs> Away we go! Betty, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. So, Betty, why don't you introduce yourself, if you don't mind? Sure. So, my name is Maddie Ruvalo. Um, I'm a disabled transportation planner. I've worked on transportation in several major California cities on a variety of issues, and I'm especially passionate about transportation access for the disability community. So I went to grad school for urban planning, specifically to combine my disability advocacy and transportation planning backgrounds. And um, by the time this episode is released, I will hopefully have my master's degree. Woo! 2020 is not all bleak. Fingers <laughs> crossed, right? Yes, definitely. You mentioned that you did work for transportation agencies for three major cities in California. That's Oakland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Uh, I was wondering if you could describe kind of just what's unique about each city's systems and kind of the issues you see that each city kind of faces regarding transportation. First, I should say that I'm speaking for myself here and uh, not on behalf of any current or former employers. Um, So with that said, they're all large cities with significant transportation infrastructure. They all have large public transit systems. They're all working to various degrees to build better pedestrian and cycling infrastructure. They're grappling with new mobility like bike share and scooters. Um, They also all have substantial housing and homelessness crises, which affects the transportation system. And they're all cities where car travel has long been prioritized at the expense of other modes. And this is true for, you know, most major cities in the United States and many major cities around the world. I would say that some of the major differences between the cities have to do with their land use and density 
San Francisco, for example, is the most dense city of the three and is able to support the best public transit as a result. LA, on the other hand, is famously a car city. LA's transit ridership strongly skews low income, and most of the people who ride transit in LA do so because they cannot afford cars, whereas in the Bay Area, there's more of a socioeconomic mix on transit because far more people are choosing transit over other options. Oakland's really been a leader on transportation equity. Um, Working for the Oakland Department of Transportation, I really felt like I connected in particular with a lot of people over transportation equity and mobility justice. And I really had the opportunity to to work more on transportation access uh, for people with disabilities. For those who are new to it, uh, how would you describe what mobility justice is? Sure. So I would say mobility justice is concerned with sort of the idea that mobility and how people are, are moving through space and moving through their communities is deeply political and that in order to have mobility justice, we're thinking about things like racial equity disability justice, ensuring that all people are able to sort of move through their communities without being policed, without uh, facing accessibility barriers, without facing other kinds of sort of structural obstacles. Um, And so there are a lot of um, people, particularly people of color within the transportation space who are doing work. Um, There's an organization uh, in LA called People for Mobility Justice that does really great work. And there's also an organization called The Untokening, which is led primarily by black and brown women and non-binary folks who are transportation planners and who have done a lot of work that I look to and whose leadership I try to follow in really pushing forward uh, this new wave in transportation planning around mobility justice. And I feel like this is so uh, connected with housing justice. Yes. The broader, you know, just, you know, social justice, racial justice, and clearly disability justice. I was wondering, you know, just to take a step back, uh, how did you become interested in urban planning and transportation? Yeah. So my first job out of college was at a disability rights organization. And one of the major issues for community members um, that I encountered in that job was transportation. I am disabled and my disability does affect how I use transportation. But that was the first time that I was hearing a lot of stories about, say, bus drivers passing up wheelchair users at bus stops. And so that experience spurred some interest. And then I joined the San Francisco Fellows Program, which prepares young professionals to work in city government. Um, And I ended up at the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency, or SFMTA, 
working on pedestrian and bike planning. And I just loved it. I really, really loved it. And I started thinking more about how mobility and transportation are so deeply political, how the ways that people move through their communities are contested and shaped by social forces like racism and sexism and, of course, ableism. And so when it was time to go to grad school, I wanted to focus my research on transportation access for the disability community. And, you know, there aren't that many disabled folks working in transportation planning, or at least not that many who are open about their disabilities. And so I felt and feel that because I am not just disabled, but also really connected to the disability community and am accountable to the disability community, that I could bring a specific vantage point to the transportation planning field. Uh, I love anybody who's like a total dirt for infrastructure. So for your capstone project, you conducted a survey of people with disabilities in San Francisco about new mobility technologies and services. So before we get started on digging into this, uh, what is new mobility? Yeah, so new mobility, uh, also known as emerging mobility, refers to transportation services that are generally available on demand and usually rely on technology like mobile apps and real-time location data. This is sort of like this new wave of transportation services that use technology. And so things like Lyft and Uber, bike share, car share, uh, scooters are all considered new mobility. Because mm-hmm. I think rideshare is something that people are pretty familiar with, but this broader category of doability, do you think that's still new or not that new? I think still new, but it does change really quickly. Bike share systems launched in, I think, most cases less than a decade ago. Um, Scooters really came about just in the past few years. Uber and Lyft, sort of like mid-2010s, became much more widespread. Of course, one of the things that's been an issue with Lyft and Uber, um, at least in California, is that they're regulated at the state level by the California Public Utilities Commission because they argue that they are not a transportation service, that they are a technology service, and therefore that they should not be regulated by transportation regulators who would um, almost inevitably put more restrictions on them and require more from them in terms of sharing data. They are contested in terms of their accessibility, and uh, many of these services have argued that they they think that the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, does not apply to them, again, because they argue that they are merely a technology platform um, and not, in fact, a transportation service. Yeah, thank you for that. And I was wondering you to tell me a little bit more about the origin and the purpose of the survey. On the one hand, it's frustrating that 
like some starry-eyed transportation planners look at inaccessible scooters and think, you know, this is the future of cities while the sidewalks around them are cracked and the curb ramps are missing. Um, but on the other hand, the conversation about new mobility is happening, and I want disabled folks to be part of that conversation. Um, 30 years after the ADA, these companies launched entirely without accessible options, and that's a problem. Um, and then on a practical note, you know, there was a gap in the data. Transportation agencies love data and uh, SFMTA, the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency, wanted to understand how disabled folks felt about these services and what their experiences had been. And so that's what prompted the study. It was definitely a process finding the right questions and the right language, um, because of course I didn't want to ask leading questions but I also wanted to make sure that survey respondents had the opportunity to share experiences that I knew anecdotally were common. Um, so for example, I asked about different new mobility modes in neutral terms. And, you know, I also asked if they had experience with a scooter or a bike blocking their path of travel, because that's something that comes up a lot in just conversations with people. And I also asked a number of open-ended questions to give people the opportunity to share more about their experiences in their own terms. And I also got really valuable feedback from several disabled folks, yourself included, as I crafted the questionnaire. And then I worked with the folks at SFMTA Accessible Services on the types of questions they wanted to answer to sort of create a survey that felt useful and balanced. I also worked with a community-based organization, Senior and Disability Action, to, I did some like pre-survey testing with them, and then also worked with them to distribute survey questionnaires, which were available on paper and also online. And then I worked with SFMTA Accessible Services to distribute the survey to their contacts, and then reached out personally to other community organizations in San Francisco. So your survey ended up with 280 participants, which I think is pretty fantastic. Yeah, I was excited. Um, I mean, of course, you always want even more responses, but this was about a 10-minute survey, which means that disabled folks in SF spent over 2,000 hours sharing their experiences and opinions with me. I wanted to make sure that I captured people who didn't have, you know, internet access at home or didn't have a smartphone, um, people who wouldn't, you know, stumble onto the online survey monkey, like through something that somebody had shared on Facebook or Twitter, um, which is why, of course, I, I also had paper copies um, and why having a, the partnership with Senior and Disability Action was so valuable. That's wonderful. What were some of the major five days for your survey? The big sort of takeaway is that opinions about new mobility among the disability community are mixed, um, which is probably unsurprising um, given that people have so many different kinds of experiences. Um, and I did find different results, uh, especially by age, income, and disability type. So a slight majority of the survey respondents believe that new mobility has a positive effect on their ability to travel, but survey respondents also reported an inability to access new services, and they were concerned about the effects of these services on the broader transportation system. 
out of all of the new mobility services, people were most interested in some form of accessible on-demand vehicle transportation, which could be through Lyft or Uber or potentially accessible taxis. Over 80% of respondents between the ages of 18 and 24 said that new mobility services has had a positive uh, impact on their ability to travel, while only a quarter of those 65 plus said the same. Um, So that's a pretty large gap. And it is actually a gap that you see in the non-disabled population as well. In addition to physical inaccessibility, cost was a major barrier for people in accessing these services. And then finally, um, three quarters of survey respondents had experienced scooters or dockless bike share blocking the sidewalk, and 70% had experienced a close call with a scooter rider on the sidewalk. And I thought this was notable because there was a recent study that found that only 2% of scooters were improperly parked, and they actually looked at San Francisco among some other cities. Um, That 2% figure, and I have no reason to doubt that that's correct, you know, it doesn't capture what people's experiences with the scooters have been. One thing that really came through in some of the open response questions was that, you know, encountering a scooter or a dockless bike in your path of travel is not just a logistical inconvenience, although it is that, of course, but it also communicates to people that they're not welcome in public space and that their needs aren't important. I think a lot of transportation planners are really frustrated that there's been all this talk about, you know, scooters being a problem when a lot of people in transportation planning really feel that cars are the major problem. To me, was one of the more interesting findings was thinking about people's experience and in the context of sort of this like larger transportation world and the things that um, planners are focusing on and the things that planners consider important. You know, I've definitely experienced a scooter just blocking my way, but I would also say that what's not taken into account is, you know, the condition of the sidewalk in which you encounter the scooter, because as you know, you know, there's a lot of sidewalks where they're poorly maintained, they may be really narrow. You know, some sidewalks, you know, there are these, you know, a lot of trees with the roots so that you really don't have much clearance to to begin with on top of a scooter in the way. So sometimes all of these things converge into a pretty negative experience. Right. This is definitely something that came through in the survey responses where some people asked, and I think this is a fair question, you know, asked like, well, why are you even doing this survey? Why are you focusing on this, right? Like, you know, when people still have these basic needs that aren't met. And I think oftentimes people in the transportation planning world don't even realize or recognize a lot of the time sort of the basic like fundamental mobility struggles that disabled folks still face on a daily basis. You know, we just talked about sidewalk access in the ADA and, you know, public transportation, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about due mobility. Right. There has to be room for all of that. Yeah. And again, you know, due mobility is definitely something that's here to stay. So it's absolutely important to think about the access aspects and the way that disabled people are going to 
it'll be impacted by it. Even before new mobility came around, disabled folks were not always well served by more traditional forms of transportation. And then also, you know, we just really can't let new transportation services that are totally inaccessible go without any kind of uh, pushback. Sure, like some disabled folks may not be interested in these services, may never use these services. Um, for some disabled folks, they could be really valuable. I mean, you know, sort of using myself as an example, right, my disability is a chronic illness. And so something like a, a scooter could actually be useful for me. I think there are possibilities here for disabled folks. And then there are also possibilities with adaptive scooters and adaptive bikes. But we have to have the conversations and we have to say, you know, you can't just ignore our community. Actually, another sort of interesting response where our answers were totally split was I asked, would you support an inaccessible new mobility service if there was a fee on that service that went to funding better accessible transportation? So, you know, an example of that might be something like, um, you know, you have like a scooter share system, maybe that's not accessible or that, you know, maybe has some adaptive scooters, has like three-wheeled scooters or seated scooters. But for every trip taken on an inaccessible scooter, there's money that goes into a fund. And then that fund goes to pay for like better ramp taxi service. Um, and people were really split. Interestingly enough, there's not necessarily one right answer, but certainly just totally excluding the disability community and saying like, this isn't for you. We don't understand why you're upset about this is the wrong answer. Right. And I feel like, uh, you know, there was nothing about us without us. And, you know, there was, you know, uh, anytime, you know, we want to make a case for something, we need data because, you know, anecdotal evidence is, Incredibly important that's based on lived experience, but also these larger scale, you know, studies and surveys really can also bolster any sort of policy change. Speaking of policy change, uh, you know, even though the findings were, you know, not definitive or in terms of like, you know, majority felt, you know, one way very strongly, uh, are there any policy recommendations that you think would, you know, theoretically make sense based on what you learned from the survey for cities? Yeah, definitely. So actually, it's interesting you said. A couple of minutes ago, you know, new mobility isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And I actually think that um, we don't know that for sure. Um, ah. So I, I guess this is, again, where I feel like we have to give the disclaimer that we're recording this in April 2020 in the midst of a pandemic. And by the time that people hear this, you know, the world in general and the new mobility landscape in particular might actually look very different. 
But of course, one of the interesting things here is just sort of that these are, for the most part, private companies or public-private partnerships, and that does, in some ways, make them less permanent. Um, but I guess first, I'll say that one recommendation that I feel very confident about giving that that is evergreen is that cities need to listen to disabled folks um, and have disabled people in decision-making roles. That's not even really a policy recommendation. That's just something that they should be doing um, because we are such a huge part of the population and our needs are so often overlooked. Um, and when you don't have disabled people in decision-making roles, you make mistakes that uh, are really damaging to people. Second, having accessible on-demand vehicle transportation was something that really stood out as being important to people. These services should be low cost or ideally free um, and could potentially be paid for with fees on inaccessible trips. A lot of disabled folks don't drive and a lot of disabled folks don't own cars. The most common way that disabled people travel in the U.S. is as a passenger in a car. Um, and so the ability to have that kind of ride on demand would be really valuable to people. Um, additionally, it's clearly very important to people to get these new mobility devices out of the path of travel. So uh, one sort of potential policy uh, intervention, and I think several cities are doing this, the area that I know best is in Venice, uh, Venice Beach in California, where there's been a fair amount of success with turning excess sidewalk space or space along red curbs into designated scooter parking. Yeah, gosh, I have so many more, but the, I guess the last one I'll share for now is that cities should build safer pedestrian and bike infrastructure that is accessible to everybody. Several people said that they would be interested in accessible bike share or accessible scooter share, but they were nervous about riding alongside cars. We know that disabled folks are disproportionately likely to be injured or killed in collisions. So widening sidewalks and building bike lanes, as long as accessibility is front and center in designs, and I say that again because there are also ways to design bike lanes uh, that make things less accessible for disabled folks, um, but doing so correctly makes streets safer for disabled folks and also for all vulnerable road users. Um, and, you know, if bike and scooter riders had their own lane, disabled folks, A, might feel more comfortable trying these services if there were accessible options available, and then all riders, disabled and not, would be out of the way of pedestrians. And so that's something that's, like, not specific just to new mobility, but is sort of a big ongoing issue within transportation. Oh, and uh, just to get back to what I sort of mentioned before about these private transportation companies, I guess my sort of big takeaway here is just to be skeptical of these private transportation companies. Um, you know, they're mostly backed by venture capital. They're not making a profit. Honestly, it's really expensive to provide transportation, which is why it's primarily been done by the government um, in the U.S. for the past, you know, long while. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's actually not out of the range of possibility that every single scooter company could fold by the time this episode comes out. I guess I, you know, we don't know what will happen with the economy in the next few months specifically, but really like a lot of these companies are in precarious situations. And so I do think public transportation agencies have to focus 
or I have to know where they have leverage and you just don't have as much leverage over private companies that you're permitting to operate versus, you know, transit service that you yourself provide or even some of these like bike share partnerships where there's a contract in place. And so public transportation agencies have to think long term and they have to protect the public interest. That's great. I was wondering, is there anything else you'd like to share us to maybe the future of transportation or just kind of what your, your vision of transportation could be like? Yeah, I think one thing you posed to me prior to this episode was, you know, that if I were a wizard and sort of had a magic wand and could design an accessible and inclusive city, what would that look like? Um, you know, that's something that I sort of, I'm always thinking about a little bit, but was thinking about uh, especially, and I think, I mean, starting from like a transportation standpoint, right, we want high quality, fully accessible, free transit that runs 24 hours a day. We want publicly owned and operated bike share with a variety of accessible options. Uh, You know, I want a future where people take most of their trips either by transit, walking or rolling or bike, um, which reduces vehicle congestion, which reduces emissions. And then also for those who do need to travel by car, you know, makes necessary vehicle trips less of a hassle. Sometimes folks in the disability community get nervous when people talk about reducing car vehicle travel. Um. Because some people really do need to travel by, you know, in in a car for accessibility reasons or other reasons. Um, But I think really the point is to shift all of the trips that don't need to happen in a car away from cars um, so that it's really only the necessary vehicle trips that are happening in vehicles. And then, you know, sort of thinking bigger picture, right? Like, I want to live in a city where no one's movement or existence is policed, where nobody is incarcerated or institutionalized, where everybody is housed and fed, and everyone has what they need to live a meaningful life, however they define it. So that's, I guess, my my vision um, of an accessible and inclusive city. I hope that some of the work that I'm doing can help help us move in that direction. And I, I hope more disabled folks get involved in transportation issues, um, whether, you know, through becoming a planner or joining an advocacy organization or through some other method, um, because, you know, our voices are really needed. I would love to live in that version of the future. And until then, I'm going to be, you know, working in community with folks um, to try and get there. Well, I want to live in that world with you, Maddie. <laughs> yeah. One day. One day. One day. One day. Well, Maddie, thank you so much for sharing all that you've done and just the future has like a little bit less potential. I'm just really excited to, to see what you do and that's I am glad that you are going to be part of this urban planning transportation world. 
Well, thank you. As always, your your wisdom and guidance is, you know, invaluable. And um, you are such a beacon of light in our community. Yeah. And we are so we're <laughs> we are so lucky to have you. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Projects. And all that community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. All episodes and video text transcripts are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Maddie's research on my website. The audio producer for this episode is Cheryl Green. Introduction by Latif McLeod. Theme music by Wilter Sports Camp. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or Google Play. Did you also support our podcast for a dollar a month or more by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp. That's P A T. R-E-O-N.com slash TVP. Thanks for listening. See you on the internet. Bye. Rocket to the blast off. Stop, drop, dance off.